This week on the Backtable Podcast. Hundreds of thousands of people go to the driving range every year and hit a bucket of balls and never improve their score one iota. And that's because the part that's missing is this idea of deliberate practice, which is it's very thoughtful, systematic, and it's very data-driven. So if you perform on the golf course where you say, I'm going to hit this nine iron 130 yards, and then as you get more skilled, you're going to say you're going to hit it 130 yards to the right or the left, that's deliberate practice. But doing the same thing over and over again in a mindless way doesn't actually make you better. I think every surgeon who's an expert will agree that they didn't get better because they did a thousand knee replacements or shoulder replacements. They got better because for every single case they did, they learned something in a deliberate way that they brought to the next case. And so that's where the volume part is really important. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable Innovation Podcast. This is Aaron Fritz as your host again this week. Today, we have a great episode with Dr. Danny Goyle. Dr. Goyle is an orthopedic surgeon in Vancouver. He is the CEO and founder of Precision OS Technology, a software company focused on immersive, experiential, virtual reality-based medical education. Welcome, Danny. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you, Aaron. It's great to be here. So, Danny, we've had some episodes around VR a little bit before we had Justin Barad on the show. Do you know Justin at all with Oso VR? I do, yeah. Okay. So we've had him on. We've talked to Uli Chedapali. He's got Sirica Therapeutics, which actually kind of uses VR for autism disorders. And then we've had a number of people on the show to talk about AI, like Chris Mancy talking about Viz AI. But today uh, with your company, Precision, we're actually going to be talking a little bit about everything. I want to talk a little bit about VR, AR, AI, and how you guys are using these technologies, how it's being implemented in surgical training. But first, you're at University of Vancouver, right? Or British Columbia, University? Vancouver, BC, that's right. So Danny, real quick, are you still clinically full-time or part-time? Clinically full-time, actually. Technically, it depends on how you define full-time. That's a very difficult thing to quantify because it depends on where you live and how busy your practice is. So by the standards here, I'm full-time slash part-time and others. <laughs> okay, true. Um, and, and I know you got your MBA. So just real quick, tell our audience sort of like your pathway to where you are today, starting from, you know, where you did med school. So I grew up in Winnipeg, Manitoba, which is uh, just north of North Dakota. And I did my uh, medical school there. And then I moved to Calgary, Alberta, where I did my residency program in orthopedics. And that was back in, I graduated there in 2008. After residency, most people right now in North America and even abroad will do subspecialty training. And so I spent a year in London, Ontario at Western University, where I did a shoulder fellowship. And then to deepen that even more, I went to the Mass General in Brigham uh, and did a second shoulder fellowship there. Okay, cool. And then when did you work in your MBA in this training? So that was quite a few years ago. I always had an interest uh, in the business side of things. It's an area that we get very little knowledge in through medicine, as you know. And uh, so I pursued that. It's been about three or four years. You know, we have a number of physician founders on, some of which I just mentioned. Some have gotten their MBAs, some have not. And so I always like to ask them, because I have an interest in possibly at one day pursuing one, is do you think it was worthwhile or do you think this is knowledge that can be picked up in other ways? It's a really good question. I've had this discussion with many people who have or have not pursued that. What an MBA is, it provides you 
foundational knowledge. And I think you can achieve that foundational knowledge through multiple resources, whether it be a classroom, online, or through textbooks. And it's the application of those skills that we get very little literacy in, at least in medicine, that I think is really the decision for people pursuing a path in business. But I don't think that uh, an MBA is not as necessary to pursue that avenue. Yeah, because I mean, they are expensive. They're time consuming, especially when you're a busy doctor. So did you do one of the programs where it was like weekends and evenings since you were practicing? Yeah, it was a combination of both uh, remote and in-person. And it was done at a University of Toronto. Okay. But I hear it's great networking. I mean, I hear like if you're trying to raise money and stuff like that, that it's great to have that sort of foundational network as well. I think what it opens up, it opens up to you a network of people who are, you know, focused in different segments that you may find value in, whether it be marketing, financial literacy. In our case, you know, I did a healthcare focused one about three or four years ago. So we talked a lot about artificial intelligence, ethics in business uh, as it relates to healthcare and several topics that we get some exposure to, but not at a, at a depth level that you would do in an in-person or remote course. So let's get into that. Let's get into when and how you got interested in VR and AI. Can you give us a little bit of background on that? Sure. So, you know, my pathway to that was very circuitous and it was a collection of several things that I was pursuing, not knowing where this is going to end up. And when I started practice, one of the biggest things, as most surgeons uh, and my colleagues will attest to, is that we always want to improve our skill. And the way to do that right now is to attend courses, uh, which are driven by professional societies or medical device companies. And that it requires travel, and that requires you leaving your practice. And part of that is, you know, that's accessible to many of us, but it's not accessible to most. So part of my journey was to learn about, you know, as many different things as I possibly could, because I wanted to focus my practice on specifically shoulder reconstruction. So there's many things to learn in that area. And I realize that that is a big challenge for many people. And I was hyper-focused on one area, but for those who do multiple different areas to learn all those skills is a really, really big challenge. So I started pursuing different paths of how to drive more efficiency in my practice, I did some research on patient access to physicians in Canada, which is a big challenge. I pursued some health economics studies, which I was able to publish. The pathway was actually to initially create an app, a mobile app, just on your phone for physicians to help support efficient referral to the surgeons, because a lot of the patients we see are non-surgical. And I randomly met uh, my first co-founder, Rob, who happens to be, uh, you know, an expert game developer, worked at EA at a previous company that he sold. And we started talking about this and brainstorming. And he said, you know, you need to meet Colin, who is a good friend of his, who they worked together and worked at several companies together. And that was the first time I experienced virtual reality. And that was back in 2016. And that was with a headset. That was with a headset and quite elaborate setup back then. Yeah, I would take it wasn't the current like Quest or Oculus. Was it one of those wired ones back in the day? Yeah, we used the HTC Vive back then, which was quite heavy. We had tripod set up, a really expensive game computer. It was all set up in Colin's basement, actually. That's where the first time I saw VR. So, I mean, that was six years ago, quite a long time ago. Yeah, the first time I saw it, it was something similar. I don't know what kind of computer it was. It was a, a gaming buddy of mine set it up and it was this uh, zombie game. And 
I was blown away by how real it felt, you know, having zombies come up from behind you and stuff. And I'm not a big gamer, though. Were you a gamer or are you a gamer? I played a lot of video games growing up. Uh, that was my thing, but I never pursued it as a young adult or currently. What I've noticed just as VR has kind of evolved, it seems to be really popular, mostly popular in the ortho space. Why do you think that VR is more popular in the ortho space or seems to be? I think there's several reasons there. I think that, uh, you know, the companies in this space, there's a direct application to it, which is immediate in understanding the value. We learn a lot about implants and we're always trying to learn which implant to use for which problem. And that's a very challenging thing for the medical device companies and as surgeons to combine and learn about. And it's a very expensive proposition. So if you can digitize that and virtualize that experience, it becomes an immediate and apparent offering that, you know, seems to have value in VR. And, you know, me being an orthopedic surgeon, you know, that was the first area we explored. And that seemed to be a natural fit, uh, given the uh, requirement and the need to combine those two worlds. Also, I mean, in the last, I guess, year, there's a company called Immertech that was basically allowing uh, you to watch a live case. I'm an interventional cardiologist. This was a vascular case with a cardiologist up in uh, Michigan. And they sent me a headset. It was basically your Oculus headset. And I was able to stand and watch the case in you know real time. I mean, it's very cool. It's very immersive. You feel like you're in the OR, the procedure room, or in that case, the cath lab. Um, and I actually was able to change channels a little bit. And I, I was able to watch like a spine case that was going on at the same time. And I thought it was very cool, but it wasn't interactive, right? You're like a med student just standing there watching. So let's kind of talk a little bit about VR and its evolution. How have you seen it evolve since 2016 to where we are today? And kind of let's kind of use that as a segue into what precision does for people today. Right. So, you know, I'll, I'll start off by saying that education is like a ladder. There are rungs on the ladder, which we have to go up to get to where we want to be as experts. And so I think that all the different modalities of education are necessary, such as reading textbooks, reading papers, watching videos, either online or through a solution that you described. There's VR, there's cadaver learning, and in between that there's sawbones or other plastic models. And then of course, on the patient. So the question is, what evolutions have I seen in VR? So the hardware one is the most obvious. And why that's important is because it supports scalability and ease of use around the world. You know, when we started shipping headsets in big cases with computers, just isn't set up for scale and for wide distribution. So that, that's the first observation that's, you know, very obvious and clear. The second is, as we continue to grow and learn about VR, we're learning the capabilities of the actual technology. And I think that what we did six years ago is very different than what we're doing today in terms of the level of interactivity, what you can actually do in the virtual space with instruments, tools, and tissues. And of course, it continues to evolve because we're pushing the computing power in these little headsets to achieve what we believe to be a very lifelike experience in the virtual environment. And that's where we started from the beginning is we established this principle as if we're going to create something in the virtual space, it has to not only look like it's real, that's sort of a foundational piece. I think everybody's driving towards making it look real, 
But the part in addition to that that we focused on is to make it feel real, meaning that you can go in, you can make a true mistake on a virtual patient, and then you collect data on your true performance, specifically on how you made a decision to do what you were going to do. What is the current state of Precision OS? Like, What are your current solutions that you offer? So our customers include the medical device companies, as well as the residency training programs, because their agendas are aligned. One wants to enhance skills, skills training for themselves. And the second wants to support those skills and using the right product or the medical device in those scenarios. So that's where we are as a company. And, you know, where we see this going is a deeper and deeper level of engagement to really focus on those performance aspects and see how people are doing and actually get to a state where you can truly practice in a virtual space and then feel confident and competent enough to go to the actual OR and do that procedure on an actual patient. Yeah. You know, as we all know, those of us who are proceduralists, the key thing is volume, right? Reps. To master skill, you got to get reps. And we've seen problems out there when docs don't get those reps, right? I think everybody worries when they come out of training, did I get enough reps in? Did I get enough volume in? And so you have some interesting data on your website. Like, for example, you know, many residents are not universally prepared to perform core procedures. 66% of new fellows are deemed unable to operate for 30 unsupervised minutes. Where, where do you guys get those kind of numbers from? So the general surgery literature is actually from a really large study performed in the U.S. across all the general surgery programs. And where that data came from was they evaluated graduating residents to see how long they could operate independently without requiring assistance. So that's where that study came from. Many of the studies on our page are actually studies done using our software, comparing them to other forms of media. And uh, that includes, you know, reading a paper, watching a video, and we have some exciting research coming out in the next few months, which you'll see at some point. I think it's important, Aaron, to talk about this idea of volume. That's a view on how to become proficient, but it's very much scratching the surface when we talk about what you need to become a skilled surgeon. And there are certain things when you're an operating surgeon that require repetition. Certain things such as, you know, how do you position the patient, um, you know, which sequence of instruments you'll use, but surgery is a lot more complex than that. I always use golf as the best analogy. Hundreds of thousands of people go to the driving range every year and hit a bucket of balls and never improve their score one iota. And that's because the part that's missing is this idea of deliberate practice, which is it's very thoughtful, systematic, and it's very data-driven. So if you perform on the golf course where you say, I'm going to hit this nine iron 130 yards, and then as you get more skilled, you're going to say you're going to hit it 130 yards to the right or the left, that's deliberate practice. But doing the same thing over and over again in a mindless way doesn't actually make you better. I think every surgeon who's an expert will agree that they didn't get better because they did a thousand knee replacements or shoulder replacements. They got better because for every single case they did, they learned something in a deliberate way that they brought to the next case. And so that's where the volume part is really important. It's those feedback loops, right? Getting that constant data feedback for every rep, every rep you take. It's like, okay, what did I do on this rep that could have been improved? And I think your analogy of the golf swing is perfect because 
it's frustrating when you feel like you're doing something the same every time and you get different outcomes. You know, that's why some of the greatest are always recording themselves and, and watching themselves and looking at every movement, every micro movement. And you're right. It is very similar in surgical training and working on efficiency and those mental mistakes that can really sabotage a case. So I, I do want to talk a little bit about beyond ortho. So Precision OS is clearly focused on ortho at this time, but I'm a you know vascular interventionologist. I would love to see these kinds of simulators for my specialty, for ENT, my wife's an ENT. When we talk to guys like you and Justin, we're like, great for ortho. When can we see it You know, in our specialties? Is this something that you guys have in your roadmap? Yeah, we sure do. Actually, this past year, we've expanded into soft tissue surgery. So that all started with our expansion into arthroscopy, which is putting a camera into a joint. And recently with one of our uh, med device partners, we've started doing a surgical procedure, laparoscopy. So we're in the soft tissue space now. In addition to that, we've moved into imaging. So your area would be on our roadmap, I would say, Aaron, very, very near. Because the, the imaging part, as you know, is that's a safety issue where you can actually reduce the amount of radiation exposure if you can do it in an environment that is safe and you can do it ad lib to really learn those skills of perceptual expertise. Yeah, and and that's a great segue to AR, right? Is using that imaging guidance in the case of ortho. That's great to hear. Like I, I I'm excited to see what's to come for vascular as well as for ENT. Just for our audience who may not be familiar, the difference between VR and AR, if you could just kind of break it down to the basics real quick, and then we'll talk a little bit about AR. Yeah, so virtual reality is an artificial three-dimensional environment, which is completely separate from your real environment, which you can interact with, again, different forms of interaction. So augmented reality is superimposing an object onto your real world. And, you know, for, for the gamers in the audience, Pokemon's a really good example. Uh, but we're seeing that now in the surgical space because now you can superimpose or at least have visible your patient's imaging while you're operating. And so that's where augmented reality is starting to see some more traction and some value. Whatever happened to like Google Glass and the HoloLens, it seems like that was all hot five, six years ago, but at least I haven't really heard much about them. Are they currently in the lab, you know, R&D making the next iteration, or is this something that's more up your alley in terms of what you're trying to do with surgical training? I think uh, Google Glass has evolved into the companies we know today from Microsoft and Magic Leap, et cetera. So that company itself, I don't obviously necessarily know what they're doing, but the technologies evolved to still support that initial agenda from them, which was to support augmented reality. I saw in Yale's white paper, basically talking about the future of surgical education or medical education, you know, again, VR, AR, and AI, are you guys also working on a, an augmented reality product as well? Uh, not at this time, no. It's an exciting area, but part of the journey for us is to remain focused. It's hard to do a lot of things for a lot of people. And so I think the focus piece is a really big part of our agenda to be in VR. Yeah, that makes sense. And I imagine with the feedback loops and all the data, is there an AI application to your VR product? Yeah, naturally, when you collect this volume of data, you know, it's on the roadmap for us. And, you know, I can't go into specifics, obviously, but there's a really exciting aspect of 
understanding how people behave in the virtual space. And I think it opens up a complete different aspect and opportunity for those who are using our platform. So I want to talk a little bit about the headsets. My personal experience, because I have an Oculus, I got one for the kids and I to play with. And I have a hard time with wearing it for more than 10 minutes. Just I get nauseous, I get that motion sickness, and then there's just like a bulkiness to it, right? It's just, it's not fully comfortable. You know, obviously we've seen the evolution in the last six years of headsets, which has been great. It's not wired anymore. You know, now we have hands, we have those haptics that come with the hand pieces. Are you aware of the next iteration or the evolution of headsets and where do you see it going? That's a really good question. I think the natural evolution would follow the brick phone or the brick cell phone to what we currently have is the iPhone. And uh, I remember the first time I held a, a brick cell phone and, you know, people used to wear them in their back pockets back then, you know, the big baggy jeans. And now people carry it uh, as a sleek form factor in their jacket or in their pants. And I see VR, or I would say just XR headsets going in that same direction. It makes a hundred percent sense for that to happen. And, you know, this recent uh, media release about Cambria supports that. And, you know, HoloLens has evolved their headsets to accommodate that as well. So that human factor piece where if you're going to wear a device, it's effectively, you know, a wearable, whether it be a ring, a headset, it has to evolve that way. And I don't see it not doing that over time. I was listening to Mark Zuckerberg was on the Tim Fair show back in like March or April. And he was talking about the evolution of the tactile feel, right? The haptics will be similar to visual resolution, right? You think about the TVs that we had 10 years ago versus what we're looking at right now, that just the visual resolution has evolved so quickly that haptics will be that same way where you'll have more and more sensors that will be collecting information and distributing information in that feedback loop so that basically one day it might be some form of glove where you can really work on that fine motor movement, which sounds amazing. You guys are creating this VR experience for surgeons. Anything to comment on the hand pieces? What are the limitations currently? Yeah. So one of the things that we've uh, noticed our software does is it captures many healthcare providers. So I actually, I group medical students, residents, surgeons that are in training or in practice, as well as the allied health staff that supports us in the operating room that benefit from this technology. Uh, haptics is a really common question that we get on a regular basis. And the perspective on haptics is, I don't know how much haptics you need to transfer skill. And the one thing we do know from evidence is that the more junior you are in your career as a surgeon, the more you need haptics. So if you're a medical student in your first year, and I'll use the example of, you know, drilling a hole through a bone, you need to have physical objects to help support that learning. There was a really elegant study done on a Toronto, Aaron, oh, this was quite a while ago, actually, about 10, 12 years ago, that showed when they have compared junior learners to experts, the experts, when they took away the sound that the drill made, they actually were more prone to make an error than the junior folks who are more sensitive to touch. And I found that very interesting because when I'm in the operating room, I am very visually oriented, which means that I'm looking at my field. Uh, in this case, arthroscopy, I'll use that as an example. I am oriented fully in what's happening on the screen. I know what I'm holding, 
but I don't know how much it weighs or I'm not oriented by the feel necessarily. And if it is, it's actually, it's not that much. It's actually quite significant. And, and the, the other analogy, which I found quite powerful is when you look at a young person holding a pencil, they hold it like they're holding a hammer or they're holding a bat. But as you get, you know, more skilled in writing, you actually hold it in a much finer way. And so that tactile feel becomes more refined. It doesn't need to be as a macro over time. It becomes more micro. Yeah, that's a great point. In fact, if you think about it, it almost is weightless in your hand and it's more just your finger movement than the pencil itself. So I want to switch gears a little bit to talking about the company itself and building a team, right? When was the company founded? 2017. 2017. Where did you start? I know you had a co-founder, but obviously you probably needed like a CTO. Like how did you go about starting to build a team? So we're fortunate enough that me and my two co-founders, there's three of us, Colin, who's our CTO. So he comes with a really, really strong background in uh, engineering and has won multiple awards over the years with his time at different companies like EA and others. And Rob is our creative director. And then, of course, I bring the medical aspect for all this. And what we did, the three of us, is we actually created multiple prototypes back in 2017 to test to see if this was actually going to work. And that was the beginning. So we had the key ingredients, which is the three of us. We didn't actually have to bring anybody else external at that time. And so we had all the gear. We had, uh, you know, Colin Elk gear. He had the technical. And Rob had his applications in his basement. And then I had my contributions for a medical slash business aspect. And that's how we actually started. Did you have to actively seek those guys out? How did you meet those guys? Yeah, actually, I met Rob through uh, a social circle. So his, his wife and my wife were friends uh, because they used to take our kids to gymnastics uh, when they were much younger. And that's how they met. And they thought it'd be great if the two of us met. And that's how we actually met each other. We didn't, we didn't randomly bump into each other. We actually met because of our spouses. And Colin and Rob have known each other for 25 years. And so they've had this history of building, you know, high fidelity, triple A quality video games for 25 years together. And so they came with this really rich, rich experience of not only on the development side, but actually building teams of, you know, 50, 100, 200 people and knowing how software is built and having that team from the core allowed us to build the team that we have today. I think that's the second time I've heard of founders meeting through the wives, uh, which is so funny. And in fact, I've met my co-founder through my wife. They were good childhood friends. And we're sitting around watching hockey, drinking a beer. And, you know, he's like, so what do you tell me about what you do? And I'm like, tell me more about what you do. And then, you know, turns out, you know, this idea I had, he could help me kind of make it happen. Uh, and Backtable was born. And so it's just such a neat way to like, socially meet people and then you come to find out you just you align and and you're going to build something great together yeah it was quite uh, the timing was really interesting because they were they were in the mindset of a transition and they wanted to do and apply their skills just you know on their own this independent thought they were having is it'd be great to apply these skills into perhaps a different area and so we all share that common philosophy if we're going to build something together we want it to have the biggest impact and the impact is for the patients. So if we can truly improve care around the world, let's dive deep into this space. So speaking of that around the world, 
Do you see just the cost of these headsets decreasing to the point where you can ship them anywhere, they're affordable anywhere? Is, is that going to be an evolution of the cost of technology? Yeah, I believe so. I mean, computing power as it gets faster, the form factor gets smaller and the price is impacted as well. And we started the first Quest that we bought was 1400 US dollars. I guess that would have been back in 2017. And now it's 399. And you know, from a scale perspective, it makes sense to, you know, have the hardware as inexpensive as possible because you want as many people with a VR headset, just like you want everybody to have a phone. The only way to do that is to just decrease the barrier of entry. And one of the barriers was the price and that'll go away. So we've kind of talked about the applications, right? Training docs for medical device companies to uh, also train on new devices, new procedures. Um, it is costly to run a simulation lab and to fly people out and to put them up in hotels and stuff like that. Have you guys partnered up with any institutions or companies to facilitate beta testing and awareness? Are there some big players out there that you guys have already partnered up with? Yeah, so we've partnered with 50 institutions around, I guess, globally now, uh, over 50. And some of the, you know, the biggest names in Canada and the U.S. And as well, I think what's important to note is we've also partnered with many professional societies. And the professional societies, as you know, their agenda is to train other surgeons. And one of the things that's really powerful about VR is this idea of remote collaboration, where I can be in your presence, learn from you, which is a really, really important piece. Uh, and that's referred to as embodied learning. So when I'm in your presence, Aaron, or in the presence of another physician or surgeon, I'm not just watching what you're doing with your hands. I'm actually watching everything you're doing, how you adjust the patient, the different things that you do as an expert, which make your surgical procedure flow efficiently, is the benefit I get from being in your presence. And I think that that's why we travel to visit experts, you know, because experts can make as many videos as they want, but the power of being in their presence is extremely valuable because I can see all the little things that they've learned over their years in their career and see if I can apply that to my practice. Yeah, that's a very key point, pivotal point, because you're right. It doesn't fully translate in the video. Even that in Mertech, I was able to watch them. So it's still kind of 2D, but there's a 3D aspect to it. And like you said, if you get a point where there's actually an, an interaction where you get that tactile feel and, and you can be more of a participant in that simulation, then I think there's huge potential. As we wrap up, I want to kind of get your feel for, obviously, it sounds like you got one of your founders from the video game world. The gaming world is clearly leading the innovation in VR and AR. What's your take on the whole metaverse? I'm, I'm actually in the middle of, of reading the book by Matthew Ball, which is a great read. Uh, I highly recommend it. You learn a lot about the gaming world, especially if you're a parent, I think is essential because all these kids are into Roblox and, and Fortnite and they, they like this, what's it called? Massive multiplayer games. They like that interaction, right? And that's really what we're craving in medicine, in training. So I want to hear your take on the metaverse and where you see the potential for medical education. So I think the metaverse is certainly here to stay. Obviously, I have a bias uh, given my you know background with the company, but what I've seen and the impact that it can have to date and the evidence behind what it can deliver, that for me is a really, really powerful scenario. And the other application is, you know, like I mentioned, connecting people in a way that we just were unable to connect before has significant impact 
for people from a learning perspective and then from their ability to apply that care to their patients. So the metaverse period, I think, is here to stay. It's a new way to learn, and it's actually a more active way to learn. So I know you made a comment earlier, Aaron, about spending you know, long time in VR. Actually, with active learning, you can actually not have to spend that amount of time in VR. And our studies have shown that people will spend eight to 10 minutes in VR and be better at a task than if they spend 30, 40 minutes reading a document or watching a video. From that perspective, that efficiency in learning, you know, I haven't seen that talked about much as opposed to the need to wear a headset for a long time. But again, that'll be part of the evolution of the hardware. Right. If the headset is less cumbersome and maybe there's some way to get over that motion sickness, you know, I've heard people say, oh, it just takes some Dramamine. I'm like, I'm not taking a drug to get on <laughs> yeah. to get on VR. But I like that idea of like eight to 10 minute sessions to really get the most out of whatever the simulation might be. And then again, it's, I think that's part of the reason why my kids just prefer to play on their Nintendo versus the Oculus is just they're not quite you know, they can't spend a lot of time on it either. But again, it'll come with the evolution of it. I mean, look at how far it's come just in the headset. You're, you're full-time practicing doc. How are you running this company as probably full-time CEO? Fill us in on that. So when you're, when you're with a company, it's a team effort. One of the reasons I can do what I do is because I have an incredible team at Precision. You know, the reason I can maintain a practice and it fluctuates, of course, as I mentioned, based on if I'm in town or not. But the reason I can maintain a practice, which is important because I am effectively a customer of our product, and I bring that lens to the development process when we have conversations about that, which I think is a really, really important piece because one of the things when you get away from medicine because it's such a dynamic area in certain aspects, you forget about where the challenges may be in workflows, et cetera. So, but the reason... I continue to do that, as mentioned, and the reason I can do that is because of the team we have. We sort of pride ourselves on accountability and the area of leadership. And so if, if someone says they're going to do something, it gets done. And so that's a really, really important part about building a company because as you continue to wear many hats, things may get lost in the shuffle. And so we've shared that sort of culture from the beginning as a company. And that's why I'm, I'm able to do what I do. Yeah, that's that's unique. You probably learned some of those leadership skills in your MBA program because I I imagine part of an MBA program is you're studying companies that have succeeded and failed, pulling those lessons into your own company. So, um, one more thing was, how did you guys get funded? Uh, or, or are you guys raising money? Is it was it friends and family to get started, or did you go to a VC firm? How did you guys get money? Yeah, so we've actually been mostly uh, bootstrapped uh, friends and family to date. And um, the question of, are you fundraising? I, I feel like the answer is always yes, because that's, that's, what, <laughs> yeah. that's what CEOs do. They're always fundraising. That never stops in terms of the conversations we have on an ongoing basis. So that's kind of where we've been as a company. It's been a really interesting journey, and we'll see where the next uh, several years go. Yeah, because it's a medical education company, are you are raising money from physicians? I mean, if uh, any member of our audience was interested... Would they reach out to you guys, you know, if there's a, an upcoming uh, round? Yeah, I'm always happy to talk to my colleagues about many things, yeah, you know, not just investment, but what is VR, you know, what is AR, how do I apply that to my practice or otherwise? 
But I think the conversations I've had with my colleagues uh, along those ways allows me to talk to them about the technology if they've never tried it before, because I think that they are really at the forefront of this cutting edge technology and they're going to drive that adoption on many levels. For the guys out there like myself who are interested in this topic, VR, AR, in addition to maybe asking you specific questions, any good resources to learn more if people wanted to take a super deep dive, but just for people who like, like you said, want to get sort of more acquainted, see how they can incorporate into their practice, maybe even find out which companies are, are using VR in terms of medical device companies. Uh, are there any good resources that you recommend? I mean, they could always contact me or somebody at our company to help provide that resource for sure. And that feedback and uh, those contacts, if they're interested to see, you know, how are, how are they using it? How are they succeeding with it? You know, there's one book that I read, which I think you'll find interesting, Aaron. It's called Prediction Machines. And uh, it's a really, really good book written by, you know, three of my colleagues and professors at the University of Toronto who really take a very interesting look at artificial intelligence and how it applies across the spectrum, what it actually means potentially in healthcare. And if I can just comment on one part of that book, which I found really interesting, is that artificial intelligence in healthcare will help you in terms of stratifying which patient requires a treatment. But what happens is the judgment that's required to action on that needs to be then elevated, which is important because we think about how artificial intelligence is going to replace physicians. It's actually going to require them to increase their need of judgment to apply whatever that prediction provides. Right. That's the counter argument, right? It's say it's great that it can predict it, but you still need the judgment piece, which AI is, it sounds like not even close to accomplishing or maybe never. But uh, yeah, no, that's, thank you for that. Any, any final thoughts before we uh, finish up here? No, I just want to thank you, Aaron. I think this has uh, been a really good discussion. I'm always, I'm really excited about this area, as you can probably tell. And I think we're just scratching the surface on where this is going to go in the next, you know, several years. And we haven't talked about it, but one of the things that we're looking at right now is patient-specific virtual reality, where you can actually upload patient scans into the virtual environment, which uh, we have, uh, and it's active right now. It's been cleared in both Canada and the U.S., which we're pretty excited about. So you're going to hear more about that this and the following year. Super excited to continue to watch it evolve. And, and so, Danny, I really appreciate you coming on. Love talking about this with you and looking forward to big things coming from Precision OS. Let me know, any of us know at Backtable, how we can help expand it into other specialties. Unfortunately, we don't have an ortho podcast yet, but we do cover vascular and interventional. We cover ENT, urology, and OBGYN. So if you need our input for anything for Precision, uh, happy to help. Uh, well, again, Danny, thank you so much. Uh, thanks for waking up early on a Saturday and talking to me and looking forward to things to come. Anytime. Thank you, Aaron. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Backtable Innovation on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable Innovation is produced and hosted by Brian Hartley, Aaron Fritz, and Eric Yamaker. Our audio team lead is Karen Gannon, with support from Caleb Hodson, Josh McWhorter, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz, with support from Anne Dang, social media and PR by Chi Dang, and Dana Parker. Thanks again for listening. 
See you again next week.